I want to tell you about Paul. Not the Paul that we attribute most of the letters in the New Testament to or some great theologian you've heard of, but Dr. Paul Kalanithi. Dr. Kalanithi was well on his way to being a brilliant neurosurgeon in his final year of residency. He's 36 years old, and he and his wife are just beginning to look beyond that finish line as he finishes his residency program. They're just beginning to dream about what their life looks like once that hurdle is crossed. But Paul starts to feel sick. Now, Paul is a doctor, and so he applies his training and his diagnostic skills to his symptoms, and he confers with his own physician, and they both come to the same conclusion, that Paul has cancer. With this new diagnosis, Paul starts to write. He writes down his musings and his reflections as he journeys through what would become the last year of his life on earth. Now, most of his writings are reflections on how what was or what has been important to Paul changes as life for him all of a sudden felt finite. That spring, Paul found himself in the sanctuary, or in a sanctuary in the pews, sitting next to his wife. The preacher starts to talk about the Beatitudes or something that Paul can't quite remember because he starts to wander off, which of course none of you ever do. But in his wandering, he starts to think about his faith. He wonders if God was testing his faith with the cancer. And he's sure that the person at the deli forgetting to put spicy mustard on his deli sandwich would have revealed the same result, that Paul has none. Paul didn't claim to be a man of great faith, but I really, I think he was, because he has this epiphany while he's sitting in the pews. Mercy trumps justice. Isn't that the gospel, he writes. This idea of mercy trumping justice, it's not original, but it's a phrase that I think is stamped right on top of Joseph's story that Fred read for us today. Joseph's story is, of course, much longer than the little excerpt that we read. Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. Remember Jacob? Jacob is the one who had the dream with the ladder or the staircase that connected heaven and earth. And he said, surely God is in this place. So Joseph is one of his sons. Well, Jacob had many sons, but for whatever reason, he favors Joseph above all his other sons. And Joseph has these dreams of his, brother bowing, of his brothers bowing down to him. And that sparks a little bit of jealousy among them. I must admit, if my sister told me about dreams where I bowed down to her, that would probably spark a little bit of jealousy in me too. Then Jacob, Joseph's father, gives Joseph this coat. You might have heard to it referred to as a technicolor dream coat in a musical. But this gift, this coat that Jacob gives Joseph, that takes that small little spark of jealousy 
and that turns it into a wildfire. Their jealousy and their anger rage at their brother. And so they come up with a plan. They come up with a plan to kill their brother Joseph and to say that a wild animal devoured him. One brother offers out a suggestion that they should put their brother Joseph in a desert cistern and let him stay there. But while they're plotting, Joseph approaches them. And when Joseph reaches his brothers, they strip off his coat and they throw him into that cistern. And then they sit down, they eat lunch, and they debate the pros and cons of killing their brother versus leaving him there in that cistern. Then they see these Midianite traders approaching on the road, and all of a sudden they have a solution. They sell their brother Joseph to these Midianite traders for 20 pieces of silver. Then they take that coat that they ripped from Joseph, they tear it, and they dip it in the blood of a calf, and they bring it to their father, saying, Here, this is Joseph's coat. He was eaten by wild animals. They let him think that he's dead. Meanwhile, Joseph finds himself in Egypt, where he works relatively happily and contently in an Egyptian leader's house before he's thrown in prison. But not just any prison. He's thrown in the Pharaoh's prison. By some miracle, Joseph gets out of prison, and then because he's able to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, Joseph is able to predict that a famine will plague the land after a time of great abundance. Being able to interpret this dream to make sense of it, it gives Joseph a break. It gives him some power in Egypt, and Joseph becomes the man with the food. Because during that time of abundance, Joseph saved all of the surplus grain. So when the famine does indeed strike the land, Egypt is okay. They're set because of Joseph. And it's here that we meet Joseph and his brothers today. Joseph's homeland was struck by that famine. They were hungry, and so the brothers went to Egypt in search of food. In Egypt, they meet Joseph, only they don't realize that that Egyptian governor with the food is their brother. But there he is. Joseph sends all of his Egyptian aides and assistants out of the room, so it's just him and his brothers there. Joseph lets out a sob or a wail even that is so loud it can be heard through the walls as he finally reveals to his brothers that that Egyptian governor with the food is Joseph. There he is, their brother, the one that they sold to Egypt by way of the traders. Can you imagine the guilt that was stirring up in the brothers in that moment. Their faces turning red and that kind of guilty sweat, the guilty perspiration that you feel when you've done something wrong and you've been caught. Can you imagine the heat rising in them as they realize that it's their brother in front of them 
and he is the one with the food? Joseph's brothers wronged him. They were going to kill him, but they sold him into slavery, which I guess is slightly better. But they still took him away from the family that he knew and loved, where he then spent years in prison. While Joseph could have responded in kind, with anger, with jealousy, with madness, but he doesn't. He could have thrown his brothers in prison even. He has the means to and the power, but he doesn't. Instead, mercy trumps justice here. As Joseph leans in and kisses his brothers, and he holds them close and weeps in their embrace. Here, mercy trumps justice. I can't really explain it better than Joseph did, how he was really able to overlook what his brothers had done to him, other than God, like Joseph said. God is the reason that Joseph is able to give his brothers grace. God is the reason that Joseph is able to look past what I hope and what is probably the worst thing his brothers ever did and to give them mercy. Brian Stevenson writes a whole book which has now been turned into a movie about what it's been like for him to try and look past the worst thing that someone has ever done and to get them mercy. In reflecting on his time as an attorney where he sat with people who had done these terrible and awful and unspeakable things, Brian Stevenson tries to get them mercy by reducing their punishment of death to something less. When Stevenson is asked why he does that work, why he spends his time with criminals, with people who have really done unspeakable things, or why it matters whether these people live or whether they die, his answer boils down to this. He says that someone, someone has to look beyond that awful thing. Someone has to look beyond that terrible thing and to see that this person, this human, is more than just that one or who knows how many awful things. Someone must look beyond that worst thing that someone has done. Oh, justice and mercy, they, they both have a place in this world. But I can't help but wonder what it would look like if instead of reaching for justice off the shelf first, what would it look like if instead we reached for mercy? What if we reached for grace first? What are those moments in your own life where you can reach for grace first? What anger or what revenge can you let go of? Can you release? Well, Joseph doesn't reach for justice first when his brothers approach him in need of food. He reaches out for mercy. He reaches for grace. He lets mercy trump justice. 
You know, oftentimes when we read stories like Joseph's story, we identify with Joseph. We identify with the one who has been wronged. We rarely see ourselves as the brothers, the ones who did the wronging. But the more I sat with Joseph's story, the more I relate to those brothers. I have never plotted to kill or leave my sister in a cistern, but I've had my fair share of mess ups. I've messed up more times than I'm willing to admit as a sister, as a daughter, as a wife, and several, several times as a new parent. I've messed up as a pastor and I've messed up greatly, even as a Christian. But what gives me hope that it's okay is that prayer of confession. Each week when we gather and worship in person and most of the time when we worship together online, we pray a prayer of confession. We pray a prayer that, that names what we've done wrong and we pray it together. In unison, we name our mistakes. And in unison, we ask God for grace. We ask God for mercy and we ask God to forgive us. Do you know what God does? God looks beyond those terrible things that we do, the big things and even the small things. And God weeps in joy as God pulls us back into the fold and God gives us grace and amazing grace with a sweet sound that saved a wretch like me, like you, like us. God gives us a world where sometimes mercy trumps justice. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Ghost. Amen.